All right. Well, in a, in a past life, I was a teacher at uh, a local high school here in town. And uh, one of the classes I taught was uh, photography. And uh, it was predominantly freshmen, sophomores. And one of the things that I would do uh, every semester with my new batch of kids is I would, I had found this slideshow presentation thing online that had, it was titled something like, 30 Amazing Photos of People Around the World. And uh, it, was just a, it was just a photo uh, blog post with a bunch of different photos on it. And, uh, and so we, we'd, we'd kind of start, like the first or second week of class, I would, I would, I would show this presentation to the kids. And, um, and so we'd look at the pictures and kind of analyze them. And, and they're pictures of, of different walks of life, of, of rich and poor, of, of different lives, uh, experiences. And, and, and they're embedded in this slideshow were a few pictures that were uh, pretty raw. Um, they really tapped into, um, man, some of, the, some of the things that are just going on in this world that are just kind of bring us to a place of, uh, man, wondering and despair. Um, and so what I would do is, I knew where those photos were in the 30, uh, in the order of the 30, and so we, we'd look at a few, and then when we, when we got to one of them, uh, before we got to it, I'd, I'd, I'd kind of preface it to my, to my students. I'd be like, all right, so like this next one, um, man, it's, it, it might be kind of tough to see. And, and they weren't graphic by any means, but, but they, they, kind of, they kind of spoke into something about our lived experience that I think we all wrestle with. And, and the things around us that we see that, that we're like, man, that's just, that's just not right. That's just, that's just wrong. And, uh, and so I, I kind of preface that. I was like, so, so just be prepared, right? You're gonna, it's not going to be graphic, but, uh, man, it's going to make you think. And my goal was I wanted them to, like, enter into a space in this class where they're thinking through life in, in the lens of, like, deeper than the, the superficial. And they're thinking, how, how, can I, how can I tell something, a story about my lived experience or about the lived experiences of another in a way that, that captivates, in a way that, that causes people to think deeply about life. Like that's where I wanted to, en I wanted to enter into that space with my students. And so, and so I saw this as a great opportunity to do that. It, it, it proved to be very effective. And so uh, one of the photos, I have two um, that, that kind of were like those, man, those photos. And one of them, I, I hope that they have it up on the, on the screen. You guys can enter into my classroom with me and we can do this exercise together. Uh, it's, a, it's a picture of a, fa of a mother and her, and her daughter. And uh, it, it, it's something that, man, you, everybody's seen a picture like this at some point. Everybody in this room, everybody uh, around the world has, has seen a story like this, a story where you're like, man, there's just, there's just something wrong with this play. There's just something wrong with this world. I mean, that, that, that stuff like this is true, and it's true all over the world where we have extreme poverty, where we have the, these destitute situations and circumstances. And so, my, and so what I would do with my students is like, all right, let's talk about it. We talk about the, the picture itself, but we would, we, that was a little early premature, but that's all right. So the, the second picture, <laughs> along the same veins, is I'll show this one. And uh, here we have the, the father. And I just, I just imagine it's it's it for the son. It's just another day, another day in the neighborhood. I mean, he wakes up, goes across his his father's room. He sees he's not there. He knows. All right, I better retrace the steps back to the bar. 
you know, because dad's going to, he's going to be somewhere, right? And so he retraces those steps. He walks down that familiar path. Sure enough, there's dad. Broken. Hopeless. And uh, I had one student once, after showing this one, who said, man, Mr. Amitano, like, man, I don't know what to do with this. I mean, the feelings that I have right now when I see these pictures, I mean, it's just, and she's almost at a loss for words. She said, is there hope? She's posing this question to me, right? And I'm up at the front. Is there hope? Is there hope for us? I mean, I see stuff like this, and I know this happens all over the place. And I experienced it in my own life. I experienced turmoil and strife. And I experienced there's a disjointedness about my life. It's just not right. Like, is there hope for us? Can there be peace? And I was struck by that question because it was so piercing and it was so deep. And she cut right to the heart of the matter. Like, is there hope for us? For us as a race of human beings? Can there be peace? And uh, I feel like today's, today's message perhaps more so than anywhere else in the scriptures, presents us with an answer to that question. Is there hope for us? And can there be peace? Can there be peace? And so I want us to enter into that mindset. I want, I want us to wrestle with that because even closer to home than a picture like this or when we're confronted in the news or on a blog or a news feed about just the, just, the, just the brokenness of our world, even closer to home, I mean, even in our own hearts, in our own lives, I'm like, man, is there peace? Can there be peace? I mean, I experience things. And I, I, I sense things in my life. I'm like, this is just not right. This is just wrong. I want, is there hope for me? And perhaps you've asked that question to yourself. Is there a hope for you? Can there be peace within our own hearts? Can there be peace in this world? So let's look at our, our text this morning. And let's see together God's answer to that question that we all share. And we start with a setting. In each, each of the Gospels, they, they kind of set this story up a little differently. There's a, little, there's a nuanced flavor that the author wants to bring to the birth narrative of Jesus. And Luke starts with a very historical bent. And so verses, verses 1 through 7 here in chapter 2, he's, he's setting up the context, the historical context of the biography of Jesus. And if you were to go and read some biographies of great men, great men. Uh, perhaps you would, have, you would have noticed this, this theme. The biographer will start in chapter 1 setting up the context of this great person's life. And oftentimes it's, they came from very humble beginnings to rise up to greatness. I found two uh, biographies uh, in chapter 1 of those biographies. One, Bill Clinton. And the author stressed that he came from Hope, Arkansas. Humble beginnings, but echoes, whispers of the great man that he would become. Or Harry Truman. Harry Truman grew up in, as a biographer stressed in his first chapter, in Independence, Missouri. Oh, these whispers of greatness, right? 
hope, independence. These men, they were foreshadows of their greatness. And so let's look at what Luke does for the foreshadowing of, of Jesus in this biography. He starts with saying, Caesar Augustus makes a decree. He sets up our scene for us. Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man in the world at that time, speaks one word and the whole earth is mobilized to go and to register for uh, taxing purposes. The Caesar Augustus, who is known by historians for coining the term Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. If you were to say, what's the, what was the gospel of Caesar? What was his good news to the world? And it would be this, the glory of Rome brings peace through power, through might, through authority. Peace, Pax Romana. The world was at peace, and it was achieved through Rome's power and might. And Luke brings that into our picture, and he brings it into this story for a reason, this little nuanced very version of the birth narrative. He starts with Caesar. He starts with a proclamation. The whole earth is mobilized and moves according to his word. But we know that behind that, above that, is the God of history directing the paths of Joseph and Mary to fulfill prophecy spoken long before that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so he uses Caesar Augustus to mobilize the world to ensure that his people are in the right place at the right time for this event to happen. And then we get into verses 10 through 12. We have two speeches, the first of which is found here. And we have uh, a picture, I believe, of Luke telling us something very important about the context of this biography, that this one, this person, that he would enter into our story and he would begin his story in humility and poverty. We have three, three, three reasons why I think that's the case, and Luke brings these out in verses 10 through 12. The first is the people who God goes to share the news, the shepherds. We got to understand what what shepherds were like and, and, and what their role was in society at that time and how they were viewed. They were viewed as being uh, unworthy to even present a, a testimony in a court of law. They were seen as ceremonially unclean. They were outcasts in their community. They were despised. They were seen as not very important, yet they were expected to lay down their life to protect their sheep. So this despised class of people, God shows up and he presents his first speech to them in uh, verse 10 through 12. And we see here the angel arrives and he says, fear not, because they were greatly feared in fear. I bring you good news, verse 10, of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you was born this day, in the city of David, the city of David, Bethlehem. Again, we have another marker that Luke gives us that he's trying to show us the, the humility of this beginning, of this biography. Bethlehem, backwater part of the Roman Empire. 
little, tiny, insignificant Bethlehem. We're not talking, we're not talking Jerusalem. We're not talking Rome. This isn't Hope, Arkansas, or Independence, Missouri. No, this is some backwater, little, tiny, insignificant town, Bethlehem. And you say, okay, that's all right, what, but it's the city of David. Okay. But look how Jesus is introduced here. He is not introduced with pomp and circumstance because he's the Messiah entering, being born in his town, in his ancestral town. No, 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 he's not. It's Bethlehem, but look, as he goes further, what's the sign that they're going to receive? He's not celebrated as he ought to be celebrated in his ancestral town, fulfillment of prophecy. No, 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 no. He's wrapped in swaddling clothes, verse 12, and lying in a manger. Now, what's interesting here, guys, think about this. The sign that the angels give him, what's the sign? He's laid in swaddling clothes. Well, there's a lot of babies probably in Bethlehem in that moment that were wrapped in swaddling clothes. That's not the sign. The sign is that he's placed in a manger. I mean, that's all they needed to say. There was no additional, well, you're going to find him here or there. No, no, no. He's, he's the only baby. What they're saying, he's the only baby that you'll find in Bethlehem this night that's placed in a manger because there's no place else for him to be laid. He is in a feeding trough for animals. That's where you'll find him. The humility of this picture that God would come and declare this movement, this, this, this moment to shepherds, to the outcasts. That it would happen in a backwater portion of the mightiest uh, empire the world has ever known, the Roman Empire. And that the sign would be that the baby would be found in in the most humblest of places, in a manger. What is he saying? What is he telling us by starting the biography off this way? He's saying it's not the heights that Jesus would ascend to. That's not not what this story is going to be about. It's not the heights. It's the depths. It's the depths that he would plummet. This isn't some you know, a farmer boy who raised in, 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 a, in a small corner of the, of the empire and he raises up to become this glorious king and all these things. No, no, no. That's not what this is a picture of. He's contrasting Caesar Augustus with Jesus. Caesar Augustus, when he was the, about halfway through his life, they declared that his birthday was a day to be celebrated throughout the whole empire, to be worshipped. His birthday, to be worshipped by the greatest among us. And here we have the baby Jesus in a manger in the backwater portion of the Roman Empire. Humble, meek, going to shepherds to be the ones that were going to attend to him, not kings. It's a picture of humility. It's a picture of humility. And who is it that came? Look at the, look at the titles that the angel gives him. Look at the titles. He says, unto you this day is born... In the city of David, this is verse 10, or verse 11. A Savior, the one who will defeat all the enemies of God's people. Savior. Christ, the one who will come and fulfill all the promises of God for his people. Lord, divine divine God, Savior, Christ, Lord. But don't miss this, baby. Baby. 
The condescension of Jesus. In that place on that night, laying in that manger, would be a baby who would be charmed by the noises of animals and the rustling of hay with the same ears that for eternity was charmed by the praise of angels and heavenly beings. That same night, in that crib, in that manger, the eyes of Jesus would close. The same eyes that have never closed, that have never missed anything that's ever happened in this world. Nothing has escaped his gaze. And on that night, those eyes would close. He'd wake up, and he would cry out for milk from his mom. And he would cry out using the same voice. The Bible says, spoke the world into existence, who said for the mountains to be lifted up and the valleys to be cast down low, for the sea to come this far and not come any farther until he gave him a new word, who told the stars to orbit in a certain order and never move from that order until he gave a new word. That same mouth who spoke those things through his power would cry out that morning for milk from his mom. His form his form is so majestic, it fills the universe, would be constrained into the form of a vulnerable, small, weak infant. The one who is older than eternity, who's always been, would be this, that day only a few hours new. And he would lay there quiet in that manger whose power and will holds everything together. I mean, think about the condescension of Christ to come down, to lay in that manger on that night. The humility of it all contrasted between the power and glory of men. This is the humble beginnings of our Savior. This is the way that his story starts. And it does not point to a place that he would ascend to. It points to the place that he would plummet to because this birth announcement was so much more than just an announcement of birth. It was a declaration of peace accompanied by God's armies. Let's look at verses 13 and 14 at our second speech that provides a structure for our text. And suddenly, verse 13 says, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts. Hosts. Another word for hosts can be armies. A multitude of God's armies. Praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. He came. Why? He came to declare peace. Not of the form of the Romans, the Pax Romana, not a horizontal peace, something way more important, a vertical peace, a peace between us and God. And this is such good news for us this morning He came to declare peace and not war. Because we're hostile in the mind. 
and we engage in evil deeds. And no one does good, not even one. Our throats are open graves. Our tongues practice deceit. The venom of vipers is in our mouths. Our lips are full of cursing and bitterness. Our feet are swift to shed blood. And in our path is ruin and misery and the way of peace, the way of peace we have not known. That is us. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is the doctrine of man. This is the testimony of our reality. We are hostile in mind. We exist in a state of hostility towards God. We have a glory problem. Look what the text says. It starts by saying, glory to God in the highest, in verse 14. It's this idea that from the bottom to the top, left to right, the full breadth of everything that's going to happen is for his glory. But we don't want that. We want glory for ourselves. We want to be the ones exalted. We want to be the Caesar Augustus, exalted by our peers, exalted in every way. We want the glory. We have a glory problem. And the beautiful thing about the Christmas message for us this season and every season, may we take hold of this, is that God came and he didn't come for war. He came for peace. He came for peace. That word peace, the Hebrew word for it is shalom. He came for shalom. And shalom means more than just the absence of conflict. It's more than that. Shalom is, well, when Solomon finished the temple, the complex temple, millions and millions of bricks, and he took the final brick, and he set the final brick into the temple, he declared shalom. Shalom is this idea of complex things, complex systems, complex people being whole and complete, not disjointed, not unhinged, but complete. It speaks of communities of desperate, distinct people being brought into harmony and completeness, wholeness. God's glory brings this peace. It brings a vertical peace between us and God. It brings a peace to the complexity of our life, to the complexity of our feelings and our emotions and our desires and our needs and everything that makes us complex, it brings peace to that. It speaks peace into that. Shalom. This peace was costly. And Luke makes, makes it very, very clear that this peace was costly. And we know it was, right? We know the gospel. But look at our text. Where is it embedded in our text where Luke just is speaking to the reality that this peace would be costly? Three times in our text, he uses, he, he says, manger, manger, 
manger. Three times. And you think to yourself, what does that mean? What's the significance of that? Well, who did he go to? Who did God go to? He went to shepherds. And on that night, in that moment, they were looking after sheep. And in just a few months' time, those sheep would be carted off to the temple to be offered up as sacrifices, as substitutes for the sins of God's people. Do you think the shepherds would have missed the significance? I mean, I don't think they would have. They're, they're there. They're watching after sheep. Those sheep are destined to die for the sins of the people. And that was something that was happening year after year after year. And it started all the way back in the garden when God killed that animal and clothed the nakedness of Adam and Eve to cover their shame. It started then, and it would never cease. Year after year, raising up sheep to go off and die. And here they are, and the angel comes and he says, you will find the Savior, the Christ, the Lord. He'll be a baby, and he'll be laying in a manger where the animals go to eat and where the baby lambs are placed when they're born. The shepherds are like, well, wait, hold on a second, a manger? We know all about sheep. And we all know all about their significance. And for you to tell me right now that the, that the Savior, the, the Christ, the Lord, he's going to be, he's, he's right now in a manger? I don't think they would have missed that significance. Immediately their minds would have gone to Sacrifice immediately they'd have been like, wait, hold on a second. Are you telling me he's going to be, is he going to be the last one? Will there be no more? Oh, oh, please tell me there will be no more. Please tell me that this one, that somehow this one will be a sufficient sacrifice for the sins of all God's people for all time, past, past, present, and future. I don't think they would have missed that. I don't think they would have missed the significance. There's a, there's a story I love. I love this story. It's about a preacher who, um, <clears throat> he got invited to go to a, a, one of those Socratic, Socratic uh, debates in Europe. And uh, he got, he, you know, he was going to be the, the Christian. And uh, they were, uh, the debate was on the atonement. And so after he got done with his, his, little, his little talk, they did the Q&A at the end. And uh, <clears throat> the first question, a student stands up to, to give him the first question, bold, chest puffed out. I got a question for you, preacher. He says, how is it that one man could suffer a few short hours on a Roman cross and die? and pay for the sins of a multitude of men and save them from eternity in hell. How, how is, I just don't, it just doesn't add up. And uh, the story goes, the old preacher, he says, he says, young man, oh man, I am so glad you asked me that question. He's like, this is the, this is my most favorite question to answer. I will tell you how one man can hang on a Roman cross for a few short hours 
and suffer and die and pay for the sins of a multitude of men and save them from an eternity in hell. I'll tell you how, I'll tell you how that can be. He's like, I want you to imagine there's a scale. A scale. And on one side of this scale, man, I, I want you to put everything in this world, everything, everything that brings delight, joy, happiness, everything that we look at and we say that is in planets and mountains and sequoias. I mean, everything I want you to put on, on this side of the scale, everything that produces joy in this world, everything that we look to with awe, put it over here. And he's like on the other side. You put Christ, and Christ outweighs them all. It's the value of the one who made that sacrifice. The Bible says a man, men have sinned, therefore a man must die. The blood of bulls and goats are not sufficient to cover sin. Something more valuable, something more precious the weight is just too much. The sins are just too great. He's stacking them up to, and they descend up into the heavens. There's just too much. Animals cannot pay for that. Something more precious. Something more valuable. Only the God-man, the man for us, the only begotten, the one who was and is and is to come, only him, only the ancient of days. Only, only a baby laying in a manger in humility. The one who will defeat all of the enemies of his people. The one who will fulfill all the promises that God has given to his people. The one who is even now as we speak, sitting at the right hand of the Father, who one day we will stand before him and we will say, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive glory and honor and dominion and authority forever. That is the one who's laying in the manger. That is the one who came. He came to declare a vertical peace. A vertical peace. And what's our response? Well, let's look at verse 15 through 20. What is the response of the shepherds? They went and they beheld. They went in haste and they beheld. They beheld the lamb. They, they, they looked at him. They, they considered him. They drew their gaze to him. That was their response to this news. That is our response that is our answer. We gaze, we behold the work of Christ. We experience his presence. They went and they experienced the presence of the lamb. We, as believers, experience, we behold. What did Mary do? She pondered. She meditated on these truths. She drew her attention, her mind. She focused her mind on, this, on these realities that he came. He came to declare peace. And they worshiped. The, sh the shepherds came and they worshiped. They told people and they worshiped. This was to them the greatest of news. And this is to us the greatest of news. There can be peace. There is hope. It provides the answer to my student's question. 
Man, if it was, if I could go back. I remember I just said, you know, I remember saying something like, be the change you want to be in the world or something. Be the change you want to see in the world, something like that. I said something like that. I mean, what am I going to say? Is there hope for us, she asks. Can there be peace? Man, I want to bring the gospel in. I want to say, the, I want to say what, what we see here in our text, that God came in humility to give us vertical peace. And that peace, Jesus says, he gives to us. In John 14, 27, Jesus says this, peace I leave with you. What peace? The peace that he has. The shalom that he has between him and the Father. A vertical peace. This, he says, I give to you. That's the great beauty of the gospel. We get his peace. Not as the world gives to you, do I give to you. Not this peace of Caesar, this Pax Romana. Not this, this, this let, let's just try to coexist. Let's try to like not do too much to get people mad at us or to cause too many problems or try to keep the lid on things. No, no, no. That's not the peace that I give. I give you a vertical peace. That's the peace that we need. You need peace with God. That is the peace that we get. Because Jesus was the one who always existed in peace with God until that faithful day on that tree. When the wrath of God was poured out upon him, the only one who ever did everything that was pleasing to the Father, the only one that lived in utter peace and utter shalom, he became the scapegoat. He became the snake lifted up in the desert. He was the one that was cast out. He became the curse. He became sin. That we might have his peace with God. That we might experience that peace. And that peace that he gives to us, he sends us out. And then we can start experiencing a horizontal peace. Man, we go out, and there's people that are going out all over the world right now, and they're believers, they're filled with the peace of God, and that peace is moving them to a horizontal fashion of a peace. And we're taking and we're reconciling all things, right? Because that's what God's doing. He's reconciling all things unto himself. What does that mean? He's bringing them to peace. All these broken systems and broken people and broken communities, he's bringing peace to those places through the presence of his glory. As we go forward, when Jesus sent out the disciples in pairs of two, he told them, go and, and say peace on this house. Declare peace. If they accept you in, go. And if they don't, walk away, wipe, your, wipe, the, wipe the dust off your feet and walk away and give peace. And what were you saying? The reign of Christ has arrived at your doorstep. Peace, shalom is here in the form of a person, in the form of a, a person who is a follower of Jesus. We have that birthright to go out now and be agents of peace and reconciliation, a horizontal peace because we have a vertical peace with God. That is the answer that I, I would give to my students if we were outside of the confines of a classroom, a public school classroom. So in conclusion, are you looking for peace? Maybe you're here this morning. You're like, man, I mean, I had a rough morning even getting here to the service, the worship gathering. I wasn't even thinking about coming because I don't really have a lot of peace right now, a lot of stuff. Man, I love Jesus, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to follow him, but I don't have a lot of peace. And, uh, man, that was me this morning. I almost was like, man, I'm almost a hypocrite, because this morning for me, I didn't have a lot of peace in my house. Uh, some things happened un unexpected. It, it brought me to a place of chaos, not peace. 
I'm like, man, I don't even know. And I was supposed to be coming up here this morning and talking about peace. I mean, I don't even have peace. But, but as I'm even talking to you guys, devotionally, this, is, this peace is starting to take hold of my heart and it's starting to do a work in me. Why? We need to be beholding the Christ. When we behold and when we meditate, we begin to experience more and more of this peace. That's how this works. We need to behold and we need to meditate. So if that's you this morning, behold the Christ. This is the season where people are trying to figure out what is this all about. And at the end of, of, of uh, December, in January, they say that the first Tuesday of January is the most unpeaceful, unrestful day of the year. It's the most fatigued day of the year. They've actually done studies on this. There's, it's the most fatigued week of the year. Is the week following all of this. And it's like, why is that? How is that even possible? This is supposed to be the most joyous time. We should leave the season of Christmas, of Advent, refreshed. But so many of us do not because we do not experience the peace that Jesus offers to us. We need to behold that. If we've experienced that, behold it and treasure it. Man, and maybe if you're here this morning and you're like, man, I don't know Jesus and I, I certainly don't know peace. And maybe as you're hearing the gospel preached if you're hearing the, 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 the realities of our, of our hostility towards God, you're like, man, that's me. And maybe you're like my student. You're like, is there hope for me? I mean, I mean, can I know this peace? And I'm here to tell you, yes, there is hope for you. You have the seeds of repentance in your heart. Now you lack one thing. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The Bible says, for all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And those who come to him, he will in no way cast out. So if that's you this morning, I would encourage you. Peace between you and God was achieved by a baby who came. Laying in a manger. Humility. Poverty. But he came to the humble. He came to give us a vertical peace. And that vertical peace can transform us so that we can start to experience a horizontal peace. And that is what this world needs. Let's pray. And Father